What do movies, makeup, rap, tattoos, cards, and beer, Diet Coke, divorce, education, Halloween, clothes, Corvettes, birth control, and working on Sundays all have in common? These are all areas that Christians have judged each other in. These are all areas where you might have been judged in by another person, by another believer even. Your views on movies and makeup and education and Halloween and Corvettes and birth control and and the list goes on and on. These are all areas that have come into play when we start seeking to uh, deal with sin among ourselves. This is a very relevant, timely, and important topic for all Christians. And it will be until the Lord comes. I ask you this simple question. Have you ever been unfairly judged? Have your motives ever been called into question? Have you ever been misjudged, improperly judged, harshly criticized? Have you ever been part of a judgmental group of Christians, perhaps a hypocritical church even. Probably the more searching question is, have you ever been that person? Have you ever been that person? Well, of course you have. We all have. This is part and parcel of life. Judgment, discernment, making calls about what we see and experience. And the reality is, we have all been on the giving side of this, and we've all been on the receiving side of this. This is like breathing. I mean, this is like living in the reality of this world. I know something about you, you know something about me. We are sinners. And because we are sinners, we are going, and we have, and we will yet again unfairly judge one another. The reality isn't whether there will be judgment that takes place among Christians. The reality is, or the question is, will it be proper judgment? Will it be loving judgment? Will it be biblical judgment? And that brings us to the title this morning, The Proper Judgment of Sin Among Christians. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. The longer we're in the Sermon on the Mount, the more amazed I am by the Sermon on the Mount. This is a priceless section of Scripture that we have had the privilege to work our way through in these weeks. And we're in chapter 7 now. And on the first five verses this morning, very familiar verses. I'm sure there's not a word here that you haven't heard before, that you haven't read before. Let me read the text as we consider this morning the proper judgment of sin among Christians. Jesus says, verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, and do not, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The main idea of this text is simply this. With 
the judgmental Pharisees as the backdrop. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on a hillside speaking to his disciples. They're they're living in a culture where these 6,000 Pharisees are spread all throughout the land of Israel. They were judgmental. They were harsh. They were critical. They put burdens on people that they could not carry and burdens that they wouldn't even carry themselves. Thus, the hypocrite charge. With that backdrop, Jesus gave his disciples a negative and positive command related to the proper judgment of sin among themselves. Among the people of God. I want to show you the two main commands. They set the course for this text. The first one is verse 1. Do not judge. There's your negative command. The main verb there, do not judge. It is a prohibition. And then the positive command related to proper judgment is verse 5. Take out. So with that said... That establishes the parameters of this passage and the main ideas of this passage. Everything else is rhetorical question and illustration to make the point. Now we also need to understand not only the main point of this text, but also the context of this text. If you haven't been with us, it is certainly the Sermon on the Mount, and it's a very important context. Let's jump back to chapter 5 for a moment in verse 20. We've looked at this time and again, but it bears repeating. Because this sets the tone for this statement of not judging or to judge properly. In chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you, and he's speaking to believers here, he's speaking to his followers. He says, I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we said that that was speaking of a a sanctification righteousness that demonstrated a changed heart and a changed life. The scribes and the Pharisees didn't have a changed heart, so they didn't have true fruit or true righteousness. But a real believer does and will. And so Jesus sets up this contrast between us really and them or that sort of, uh, of person. And then he began to teach about practical righteousness or morality or, or godly ethics within the community. And so listen, the context of the do not judge, this is very important because it makes sense that he says it now and not sooner. Okay, The context are things like anger and murder and uh, adultery and lust, willy-nilly divorce, swearing to God, retaliation, love of enemies, giving, praying, and fasting with wrong motives. Chapter 6, right? And then he moved into serving God or are you serving money? And then he talked about worry. Are you worrying all the time? Are you seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness? And so what has happened here is Jesus has been teaching on practical, real, sometimes secret righteousness. He has been laying out for the community of the people of God. This is what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ. And as we saw throughout chapter 5 and chapter 6, he's taking the Old Testament law and he is applying it to our hearts, isn't he? He's drilling down to a heart level, to the level of motives even. And simultaneously, listen, he is raising the bar, right? So as he teaches about true morality and true righteousness, step by step, when he says it's not just wrong to murder, but it's wrong to hate, and it's not just wrong to commit adultery, but it's wrong to lust, step by step, he's actually raising the bar of morality and of holiness, isn't he? Now, wherever you have a bar, wherever you have a standard, what is sure to follow? Judgments. Judgments based on the standard, right? 
That is always sure to follow. And so now he comes in chapter 7 after giving us all of this to speak about a proper judgment. It's not a matter of if. It's not a matter of if Christians are going to judge among themselves related to our sin. It is a matter of will it be proper or not. Our goal today then, like the last several weeks, is of substantial Our goal today is to learn how, as a church, as believers, to properly judge sin among ourselves so that we promote holiness and Christ-likeness among ourselves. And that among ourselves is critical here. We have no business personally, in 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 a relationship sort of setting, going out and judging the unbeliever for their sin as if they can live up to the standard of Christianity. Now, we can call out sin in our culture, but we cannot expect unbelievers to live like a believer. They can't and they won't. This is an in-house discussion. This is intramural, all right? This is for us in the family. How do we properly discern and judge sin among ourselves with the goal of Christ's likeness in our churches? In our church. That brings us to the main idea of this sermon. It's simply this. Jesus shows Christians how to properly judge sin among ourselves. Jesus shows Christians how to properly judge sin among ourselves. It begins by, number one, not judging unfairly. That's verses 1 to 4. What are you saying in verses 1 to 4 is... Not an absolute never judge, because the word for judge here is discern. It's to discriminate properly. It's to divide. It's to evaluate something and make a decision about it. And this is part of life, right? So he's not saying that there will be never any judgment whatsoever. He's basically saying do not judge unfairly. That's step number one in how to properly judge sin among ourselves. We must be fair. (laughs) We must be fair. Now, this command here in verse 1 is not an absolute. Because look down at verse 6, which we're not going to cover today, but you can't do verse 6 without making judgment, right? That involves making a decision and discerning. In fact, you can't do verse 5 either without making judgment. Verse 5 involves taking the speck out of the brother's eye. You can't take the speck out of the brother's eye unless you can see it. So he's not giving a a mandate here absolutely against all judging ever. In fact, we will learn, we'll see later, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, Galatians 6, all require proper judgment among ourselves, again, as Christians. Neither is verse 1... The death of all moral absolutes, as it's often misquoted and misused, right? Verse 1 is one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible by unbelievers. Right? Live in my sin, do whatever. Don't you judge me, you're judging me. The Bible says do not judge. I don't know anything else in the Bible, but I know that verse. <laughs> do not judge, lest you be judged. Right? That's, that's not what this verse is doing. It's, this is not the death of all moral absolutes and all standards of behavior. This is not a call for us to turn a blind eye to the sin in each other's life. Oh, none of my business. I can't even think about that. can't talk about that. Never can talk to them about it. He's not calling us to that kind of life. That's an unloving life. 
He's calling us to proper judgment, and it begins by not being unfair. What he's really doing here then is a call to repent. When he says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, this is a call to repent of unfair judgment. This is a call to repent of that nagging, critical-minded, critical spirit person, the fault finder. It's always finding something wrong with everyone and everything. That's the attitude he's getting at here. It is that kind of person and that kind of lifestyle that Jesus here prohibits among his disciples. He's calling us here to repent of condemning others without love, of judging others without concern, of criticizing others without humility. That's what's going on. Do not judge unfairly we might say or we might translate. Let me give you some examples of unfair judging that you'll be familiar with. Maybe you've done, maybe it's happened to you, maybe you've witnessed. There are many, many examples. Here are just a few. Sometimes we unfairly judge each other based on our personal convictions. Sometimes that personal conviction is even based on a privatized understanding of Scripture that rarely, uh, that hardly anyone else holds. That's like another issue in and of itself. But we all have personal convictions, don't we? About areas in Christianity that are areas of liberty, right? And so sometimes this unfair judging happens on the basis of my personal uh, conviction. For example, areas like birth control come into play here. Certain Christians have deep, meaningful, thought-out personal convictions on this area. And bless their souls. Uh, Every Christian should think this through, should pray about this, should search the Scriptures and come to a personal conviction. But then let that be your personal conviction, not something you judge other Christians by, right? This is a very er uh, common area of this. Another one would be education choices for our children. This is another area of personal conviction and strong ones at that. And it gets, these topics get very emotional, right? They get heated. And because sometimes we move out of what's proper and we start judging folks because they don't send their kids to public school or they don't homeschool or they don't choose private Christian school or private Christian college. And we sit back and we wag our heads and we say, shame, shame, shame on you. That's just a couple of the area of personal convictions. Another one, uh, what might be the basis of unfair judging is areas of of liberty, as I mentioned. And and so among Christians throughout the history of the Christian church, we've judged each other in the area of the Sabbath, right? Are we going to follow the the Jewish Sabbath, Friday sundown to to Saturday sundown? Are we going to transform that into a Christian Sabbath uh, on Sunday? Are we going to make it a a Saturday? You know, where are we going to go with that? And we even have churches that have identified themselves on the basis of their personal conviction on the Sabbath and then judge others as to how they might practice it. I I promise you this, you and I all do many, many things on this day that our forefathers as Christians would harshly judge us for. They would probably even question our Christianity because of their view of the Christian Sabbath. This is another area. Or alcohol consumption. 
Some Christians are teetotalers and abstain completely. Some Christians uh, exercise liberty very judiciously and cautiously, and some less cautiously and less judiciously. And so it's a it's an arena, isn't it? What we eat and drink, as Paul talks about in Romans 14. What we eat and drink becomes this area of basis that we might judge one another. Because you don't eat and drink like I do, particularly. Another way that we unfairly judge one another is by judging each other's motives. Motives. I think this one probably is more common. The only way we can know someone's motive is if they tell us. If it's crystal clear. I mean, if they just absolutely, uh, unequivocally show us and tell us. But otherwise, motives are hidden things of the heart that only God knows. And often we might judge one another as to why we did a certain thing or didn't do a certain thing. And we might start to think we can read their hearts on this and read their minds. And we start pretending and playing God even. And this is an unfair judgment. Don't don't judge my motives. You don't know my motives unless I tell you. I won't judge your motives. Oh, here's another one. We judge all the time without all of the facts. We judge a book by its cover. We judge on appearance. We judge based on hearsay, don't we? Gossip even. Oh, we hear such a thing and we see such a thing and we project such a thing. And we say, well, a person dressed like this, looks like this. I, oh, then I'm going to judge. Well, they can't be a believer. There's no way that person could be a believer. And they may love the Lord ten times more than you do. Right? This is what we, we do. We're really quite skilled at this. I've been there. I've done it. It's an issue that I'm always trying to... Um, do better and think about. Here's another one. We judge based on the appearance. On oh, well, that that guy has long hair, or, or those tattoos, or or that clothing, or or that person has a lot of money, and I'm judging how they spend their money, as if we know how they spend all of their money, because they did this thing or that thing, right? Hmm. Here's another way we do it. We put people under a microscope. This might get closer to home. <laughs> this might get closer to our marriages, even. We put someone under a microscope of constant judgment where every action or lack of action, every word, tone of voice, facial expression, body language, every reaction is judged, is brought under scrutiny, is questioned, is challenged. The list could go on and on and on, couldn't it? The ways that we can unfairly judge one another. This is what Jesus is addressing. Areas of personal conviction. Areas of liberty. Areas where we don't have all the facts. Areas of the motive of the heart. Areas of a person's appearance. Or where we just fall into this, you know, I'm just going to run around and be the moral police of everybody in my zone, you know. Because I've got it all nailed down and buttoned up. And this is so ungodly and it's so uh, unloving and it's such a detriment to the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel. And it, and it opens us up as individuals and as a church and as churches to that common unbeliever accusation, right? They're just nothing but a bunch of hypocrites. And the truth is, often that is accurate. And Jesus wants to eliminate that. He wants us to repent of that. He wants us to confess that. He wants us to change at a heart level. So that we are no longer those who judge unfairly. This is the first step, really. We've got to stop before we can start. We've got to put off before we can put on. Now, he's going to go on here in these next few verses to give us reasons to not judge unfairly. He's trying to persuade us like we've seen in this passage, in this sermon over and over. These things are so hard. They're so ingrained in us, aren't they? That Jesus says, just from a 
rhetorical standpoint, just from a pastoral standpoint, this is so hard to get through and over. I've got to give these people reasons. I want to persuade them now using some really strong logic. The first reason he gives us to not judge unfairly is because if you do, it will come back around. It's going to come back around. Look at verse 1. And let me, let me translate this for you literally. He says, and I'm going to insert unfair so that you understand what he's saying. For in the unfair judgment you unfairly judge, you will be judged. And in the unfair measure you measure, it will be unfairly measured to you. He uses the root word for judge three times. He uses the root word for measure three times to drive home this point. If you and I decide to go down a path of unfairly judging one another, it will come back around. This is a boomerang. So if we're harsh and we're critical and we're a judgmental attitude, it is a boomerang that we're going to throw out there and then it's going to... Bam! Whack us in the back of the head when we least expect it. You see, the knife of unfair judgment cuts both ways. It cuts both ways because that's just human nature. It's just human nature. Jesus understands what people are like. And He says, if we set out on this path of continually judging one another unfairly, we will be judged unfairly and it will be in the same exact measure that we mete out to others. What he's describing here is this reality. When we have a judgmental spirit and a judgmental home and a judgmental church, we create a combative culture. That's what this creates. And when you create a combative culture within a family and within a church, it's just going to be tit for tat. It's just going to be one-upping one another all the time. You see, harsh is a boomerang. And it's not something you want to play with. We are experiencing in our culture right now a very harsh culture, a very unloving culture, a very uh, uh, mean-spirited culture, uh, certainly through through politics, it, perhaps worse than it's ever been in American history. I don't know. You could debate that. But I think we are witnessing a living, walking, breathing illustration of verses 1 and 2. And it's in our president, President Donald J. Trump. Love him or hate him, he is a walking illustration of this. And I just bring this out just so you can see it because it's so evident and it's so obvious to us. Right or wrong, this man is constantly judging, constantly measuring, constantly labeling and name-calling, right? This is not a newsflash. He is perhaps the most abrasive, harsh, critical president ever. And I understand... It's the culture we're in. It's the culture of politics we're in. Our president relentlessly goes after his political opponents. He relentlessly goes after his enemies, real or imagined, and sometimes even his friends, which has often been the case. So we got that all on one side. And I'm not, I'm not judging the morality of that. I'm just observing the behavior. I'm not even saying it's right or wrong as a president. Maybe it's very strategic. Maybe it's exactly what he needs to do. I'm not, even, I'm not evaluating that. I'm just pointing that out to you, right? So on the one hand, you've got that going on, really from day one, before day one, right? And on the other hand, bearing out what's going on here in verses 1 and 2, 
He is beyond a doubt one of the most hated, maligned, attacked, oppressed, even, we might say at times, persecuted presidents we have ever seen. What I'm suggesting to you this morning that that, that those two things are not unrelated. Now, I understand that the most godly and the most wise of all presidents could still be attacked and oppressed and persecuted. I understand that and, and will be. And I understand that much of what he's experiencing is exactly that. It's exactly that. Because of his stand against abortion, because of his stand for Israel, because of his Supreme Court appointees, often it is legitimate persecution, if you will, for those decisions. But I am suggesting to you that he is an illustration because I think he exacerbates the anger and the hate. And I actually think he enjoys it. <laughs> I, think he, I think, in fact, he almost lives for it. I think he lives for a fight. And it's what energizes him and keeps him going. But that's another discussion. <laughs> the bottom line is, he is a lightning rod because of his tweets, his decisions, his non-decisions, his family, his businesses, his Supreme Court appointees, and his perfect phone calls to foreign presidents. Okay, Lightning rod. Now, if you know a little history, let me just give you a contrast to make my point even better. This president shares many of the same convictions that a former president had. Their political stances and of conservatism and Israel and abortion and many things are very, very similar. But the contrast between the two could not be greater. I speak of the difference between Donald J. Trump and President Ronald Reagan. And Donald J. Trump is hated and vilified and opposed every time he turns around. And Reagan, even with people that didn't like him, respected him and admired him. He was beloved. Now, I know our political landscapes changed completely since the days of Ronald Reagan. Yeah, it's a way different world. I get that. And it may look the same if Reagan was president today. I don't know. But to me, it just struck me. It just struck me that we are getting to see on a big macro scale every day in the news an illustration of this. Do not judge unfairly. It doesn't say do not judge at all. Do not judge unfairly is the idea so that you will not be judged unfairly. What goes around comes around. That's what Jesus is saying. What you dish out will be served back to you. And the first reason not to be unfair is to ask yourself, do I really want to eat that dish? Do I really want to eat that dish? Let me give you an application for this that I think uh, we all need to take to heart. I think this is uh, the one that dominantly came to my mind. And that would be the application of marriage. The application of marriage. I've alluded to some of this already. I think in the, in the arena of marriage, we can fall into this unfair judgment probably more than any other arena. We can question motives. We can get sideways with each other. Communication starts to uh, fall apart. And, and we can start picking and nitpicking and being critical and seeing everything that's wrong and nothing that's right. And we just start kind of going down that path, right? And it's an easy path to fall into. And everybody that's married any length of time has fallen into it. We've all been there. Uh, where, where we do all of the things that I'm talking about in, in a way that's dishonoring to the Lord and unloving to our spouse. So this is both an application and an illustration because if we go down that path, it's just human nature. You may have a legitimate thing to share with your spouse, but if you've been this kind of spouse, right? If you've been that critical person, when you try to share that legitimate thing, the first thing they're going to do is become what? Defensive. 
And you may have truth to speak in love, but they can't hear you because they're just now defending themselves. And, and a person that gets tired of defending themselves says the best defense is a good offense. And so let's just turn the tables here, pal, right? <laughs> you're picking on me. You're pointing out stuff in my life. Well, let me tell you a few things about your life, right? And this is often the case in a marriage context. What's going to happen next? What is going to happen next? It is going to be a verbal firefight. And both sides have plenty of ammunition. Both sides have plenty of ammunition because it's marriage, right? And you know each other very, very well. I just caution you against this in your marriage. I just caution you to not judge unfairly. To make those times few and far between. To, to give the benefit of the doubt. Uh, to cover it with love, right? This is marriage counseling 101 right now. Give the benefit of the doubt and cover a multitude of sins with love. Instead of questioning motives and constantly finding fault and putting your spouse under that microscope and making them walk on eggshells and making them wonder if they've ever done anything right or proper or godly. We need way more encouragement in our marriages than we need criticism. There is a time and place for criticism. It's not an absolute here, but it is to be done fairly, lovingly, properly. Jesus goes on to give us a couple more reasons not to judge unfairly. Let me point these out to you. Verse 3. What happens when we start into this unfair judgment? It makes us blind to our own sin. And this is the next reason not to do it. It just darkens your blindness to your own sin. Look at verse 3. Why? Why do you look at the speck that's literally like a fleck of sawdust... This is a carpenter teaching us, by the way. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? Not the outsider, not the unbeliever, brother. The speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice. It's not the same word as look, it's the word consider. You don't even notice. You don't notice the log, literally beam of timber. Okay? Two by four. You don't even notice the two by four that is in your own eye. When we start judging unfairly... We become blinder to our own sin. You see, they didn't have mirrors like we do in our day. They weren't near as accurate and precise and clear. And so if you've got a speck, a tiny fleck of sawdust in your eye, you would need help getting it out. You would need someone who can see clearly to come and look very closely into your eye and and find that little speck of sawdust and give you relief, wouldn't you? You couldn't find it yourself. You couldn't see it yourself. What Jesus is referring to here of of the speck is that tiny, eensy, bitty, little insignificant shortcoming. This little tiny nothing that a person has in their life that it takes you effort to find. You've got to look long and you've got to look hard even to see this little speck. And he says that while we're focused on this little tiny, insy shortcoming in my brother's life, all the while I've got a two-by-four sticking out of my eye. I'm walking up to my brother to help him with his speck, and I'm whacking him upside the head because i got a timber coming out of my face. (laughs) Judging unfairly makes you blind to your own sin. This is a major problem, isn't it? Makes us blind to our own sin. This is the proud, holier-than-thou person with little self-awareness and less credibility. 
Why? It's illogical. It's incomprehensible that you'd go looking long and hard for the teeny tiny speck in your brother or sister's eye and you've got a glaring sin in your life that you're not dealing with. That is incomprehensible, Jesus says. Why are you doing it? This is the person that's always broke telling everybody else how to manage money. You have no credibility. I am not even listening right now. La, 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 la. This is the Mother Earth politician trying to get us all to bow down and serve Mother Earth while they fly around on their private jets and live in their mansions burning up the huge amounts of electricity. I am not listening to you, Al Gore, in your 5,000 square foot house. Why? It's incomprehensible. Here's a reason not to judge. You don't want to be blind to your own sin, do you? The reality is it is incredibly easy, isn't it, to see the sin of others with crystal clear clarity and be blind to my own. I can see my wife's sin and be blind to my own. I can see your kids' sin and be blind. My little angels would never. Right? Oh, it's so easy. It's just human nature. This is part of the fall. It is easy to have a critical spirit and call it discernment. To hate people and call it tough love. It's easy. It's part of our fallen nature. So, the second reason to not judge unfairly is you don't want to be blind to your own sin. He gives yet a third reason to not judge unfairly. It's verse 4. Because judging unfairly makes you and me look stupid. (laughs) Makes us look foolish. Look at verse 4. How can you say to your brother? You notice the brother didn't ask? Hmm. The person with the log is initiating this. How unfortunate. How can you say to your brother... It's sanctimonious, isn't it? You can just feel the righteousness just dripping off of these words. This holier-than-thou, this super-spiritual person, let me take the speck out of your eye. I've seen it. I've discerned it. I've noticed something in your life. Can I share this with you? Can I help you get rid of this? Let me take care of it. And behold, look, the log is in your own eye. It's an absurd illustration, right? Because you're being absurd if you do this. The whole illustration is basically saying, if you do this, you're going to look foolish to everyone else. You're going to look ridiculous. You're going to look stupid. You're not going to have any credibility and your reputation is going to be shot. If you care anything about yourself, don't do this. Because of how absurd it comes across. First step to not judging... Well, first step to judging properly is not judging others unfairly. Second step. It's verse 5. Short, sweet, fast. By judging ourselves first. Judging ourselves first is how we properly judge sin among Christians. Look at verse 5. It's just one word. Hypocrite. (laughs) 
hypocrite. You pretender. You poser. First, take the log, the beam of timber out of your own eye. And then, and then and only then, you will see how? Clearly. You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus says, first look in the mirror. First confess your own sin. First repent of your own sins. First remove the wood beam from your eye. And then you'll see clearly. I don't know about you, but if I've got a gnat in my eye, I don't want a blind person with tweezers getting it out. No, thank you. If I've got a speck of sin in my life, I don't want somebody with a egregious sin with a pattern of sin trying to help me get it out. we got to start at home, he says. Start with yourself. Start with the mirror. Take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly. Now, if you'll notice verse 5, he gave reasons all through on the other one as well, and two reasons are buried in verse 5, and it's a win-win. There are two reasons to properly deal with sin among ourselves. The first reason is, you will get the log out of your own eye. That's a good reason. Sin leaves your life and you become more holy and more Christ-like and more obedient, right? And the second reason is, you get the speck out of your brother's eye. It's a win-win. These are great results. This is a kind of communal sanctification. This is growing together in Christ. This is moving more toward discipleship and maturity. And this is what we all should want. This is what we all need. We all have sin in our lives. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of what is it and how will we deal with it among ourselves. We first start by not being unfair and we second judge ourselves. And the end result is both sins are removed. Now notice here that Jesus never says, don't help your brother with this speck of sawdust. In fact, the Word of God teaches that it is an obligation. It is a loving obligation to do it fairly and to do it in the right order. Turn over to Matthew 18 and let me show you that what I mean by this loving obligation. Same book, same teacher. We'll get there eventually, Lord willing. Matthew 18, verse 15. Same topic. And here's why I say it is an obligation. If your brother sins, Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. It's interesting. There's never in this uh, passage the word judge. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, the whole church gathered, let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Let him be to you as an unbeliever, someone that needs evangelism and prayer. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. We don't have time to unpack all of this. We'll get to it later. But it is an obligation on us to consider uh, this topic among ourselves. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 5. Paul said the same thing.
1 Corinthians 5. He says in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, among you church, among you Christians, immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. So most likely it was a stepmother and a stepson situation and it's sexual immorality. And the stepson in this situation is a professing Christian, part of the Corinthian church. And Paul says, it's been reported that this exists among you, and it's such an egregious sin, it's, it's such an outlandish sin, this kind of sin doesn't even exist among Gentiles. Among unbelievers is what he means there in verse 1. And then he says to the Corinthian church, you have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead. In other words, they haven't dealt with the sin in the ranks, they haven't dealt with the sin in the camp, and Paul calls it arrogance. On their part. And he says you should be mourning this sin and instead you're just going on down the road like it ain't happening. You're turning a blind eye. So that verse 2, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. He's talking about church discipline, just like Matthew 18, right? So that the person who is the professing Christian who is part of your church and is practicing this sin openly should be removed from your midst. Verse 3, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him, who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's all still the same topic. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. Your boasting is not good. You're boasting in grace. You're boasting in, it's, it's fine. It's, God will forgive it. It's, it's, it's okay. He says, no, that's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? This is leaven among the unleavened bread. And it's going to spread like gangrene. It's going to, it's going to infect and affect your entire church. You got to deal with this, Corinthians. Verse seven, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. You can't, you can't live that way, right? What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? Verse 11. Actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. With any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one because eat communicate, eating communicated fellowship. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Rhetorical question, do you not judge those who are within the church? The answer is yes. An egregious sin like this? Yes. Verse 13, but those who are outside, God judges. Those who are inside, we judge. You see the contrast? We judge based on God's Word. Right? We judge. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So, here in 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18, we both have the same, they both have the same message. This is an obligation. When is it an obligation? When it's an egregious sin, or when it is a pattern of sin, unrepentant sin. An egregious, unrepentant sin 
a pattern of unrepentant sin. And so we follow Matthew 18, and we start into that loving, proper, helping one another in Christ's likeness. Basically, Jesus would say, just make sure you clean up your own house first before you go across the street to your neighbor's house. And then when you go with your own house clean and the log out of your own eye, you will be able to help your brother or sister with empathy. You'll be able to help them with fairness. You'll be able to help them with humility of heart and grace and love. And it will be received more times than not in that light. Then, and only then, will we be able to fulfill Galatians 6, 1. And I close with it. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Let's pray. Father God, this is a heavy subject. We thank You that Your Word does not skirt around it. Uh, You deal with us where we are and the realities of our lives as Christians and as churches. I thank You that the Lord Jesus was uh, bold and courageous to uh, confront His original uh, hearers with these truths. And this call to integrity and this call to holiness of life and, and this call to lovingly help one another with our battles with sin. Lord, no one here is sinless. No one here can proverbially cast the first stone. We're not here to be snooping around on each other and overlooking everyone's shoulder. But we're here to be a loving family. A family of people who care deeply for one another. And and God's best for each one of us. Give us wisdom. Help us to see our own sin clearly. Help us to notice the log in our own eye. God, help us to clean up our own house. Help us to repent and to be humble and to be broken and to recognize that there's really no sin we're not capable of committing. I pray that You would adjust us and grow us and correct us where needed as a church and as individuals. I pray that You would move us in the direction of Christ's likeness so that we are both discerning and uh, forgiving at the same time. We ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.